Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Live from Los Angeles, the Win Without Competing Show with Dr. Arlene Barrow, career coach one and author of Win Without Competing. Now, here's Dr. Arlene. Thank you, Virgil. In tough economic times, it is especially important to implement my RightFit method, which will enable you to win without competing in your career and in your life. I carefully select my guests who serve as powerful users of my right fit method. A key component of my method is passion, our career fuel, the impetus and foundation of success. Yet, many cannot find it. Looking back on my own career as a high-level manager in healthcare, my current career overseeing the executive search firm I founded in 2003, Barrow Global Search, Inc., and coaching candidates at all levels, I realize that for many, it is a daunting challenge to connect to their passion. That's why, for my book, Win Without Competing, I selected storytellers who are soaked in passion to enable the readers to experience the passion of others. My guest today, Brian Sutherland, is soaked in passion, as you will shortly hear in his voice. For many, what I refer to as the core identity is rooted in childhood. My interviews of Dr. Julianne Malveaux, President, Bennett College for Women, Anne Edwards, internationally best-selling celebrity biographer, and Stephen Citron, best-selling author and authority on the musical theater, are examples of strong career passion rooted in childhood. On the other hand, in my interview of Jan Constantine, general counsel for the Authors Guild, who won the landmark copyright case against Google, I learned that she went to law school without having passion, yet she became extremely passionate in her first position as a lawyer when she experienced how she felt when she helped her clients. The point is that we must find that passion. For many, they have more than one core identity and feel passionate about each core identity. I am that person. And many of my guests fall into the multiple core identity category as well. If you are searching for your passion and or current core identity, I highly recommend that you listen to my interviews of Malveaux, Edwards, Citron, and Constantine. Go to drbarrow.com. That's drbarrow.com. Click on the June 3rd show description for Malvo 
April 1st for Edwards, May 27th for Citron, May 6th for Constantine. On to my guest today, Brian Sutherland, award-winning glass artist known for his fizzle fruit. Brian's passion for working with glass was first ignited as a student at California State University, Chico. After receiving his Bachelor of Arts in Glass Sculpture, he accepted a position at the Orient and Flume, which has been producing fine art glass since 1972. He later studied with and was invited back as teaching assistant to Bill Gudenroth, master Venetian glass artist in Corning, New York, of the world-renowned Corning Museum and Institute. After studying with Mr. Gudenroth, Brian decided to become an entrepreneur. He set up his own glass art studio in Gridley, Northern California, sited on the property of a 35-acre abandoned fruit cannery, the Hunt Cannery, established in 1896, which was one of the largest peach canning operations in the world. The property was later operated as the Libby Cannery, a cooperative which began in 1932 and ceased operations in 2001. It was out of the enormous rubble left behind that the Sutherland Glass Art Studio emerged. Sutherland's work has appeared in leading galleries, juried exhibitions, and installations throughout the United States. Welcome to Win Without Competing, Brian. Hello, Arlene. Nice to be here. It's a pleasure to have you on my show. Thank you very much. Our listeners are eager to hear about you. Tell us about your childhood. Where did you grow up and what did your parents do? Well, I was born in San Diego, and I was in San Diego my entire life, just for a few years, pretty much just one year, I would say. I was in Fallbrook, where my dad started his organic brokering industry, his organic produce sales, started his business in Fallbrook, and then we moved to San Diego. Let's, there, let's, let's, let's hear a little bit about that organic produce brokerage because it sounds like he was a star early on before organic brokerage became popular what would you say brian am i correct yeah it was actually uh he was you know a young hippie a young hippie good all right he was a young hippie making his way selling Selling organic produce, starting the starting the trend of organics, the healthy the healthy living, and from there, I mean that is where he that's where he got you know a lot of his his fruits was the avocados and the citrus, the oranges, and he he embellished his business, getting partnerships with friends and you know losing businesses and getting new businesses and you know ups and downs and it was a rough ride at first but now he's still going and it's huge and it gets bigger and bigger every year he's basically a a founder of the organic produce it's amazing and does he himself eat it oh yeah yeah very much so so do i and 
so does all my children, my two children, and and my wife. We're very much for organics. I mean, it's been around for, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years, but never, you know, has it been so popular in the grocery stores with Whole Foods. Right, yeah. No, I'm always at Whole Foods. Yeah, uh, that's a good place. Oh, no question. Brian, tell us more. Let's hear about what you liked to do when you were a child. Well, living in San Diego, I was definitely all over the beaches. I was in the tide pools. I was bodyboarding and surfing and skimboarding and searching for sand crabs and fishing and hiking, doing a lot of outdoor activities and also doing a lot of drawing and painting and putting together little wood sculptures and just whatever I can get my hands on. Basically, since I was a child, I've been very interested and in love with art. Did your parents influence you in that arena? I mean, how did you develop your passion for art as a small child? Well, my mom, I always remember being so good at drawing. I remember having seen so many sketches around the house and beautiful weavings on the walls and she was very creative and very artistic. And so that was around my entire life when I was young. And my dad is very into art. He's not an artist himself, but we've always had beautiful paintings and, and you know, artwork and books, lots of books. And I lived right by the San Diego Zoo in Balboa Park, which was the Natural History Museum of Man and the Art History Museum and all of those beautiful museums that were so inspirational and such a big part of my life because it was my entire childhood. It was just a bike ride away. Well, you were very fortunate. Tell us about SeaWorld and the award that you won as a child. <laughs> that was fun. In second grade, there was a huge contest in San Diego between all the elementary schools that SeaWorld put on. Shotgun Tom was a was a real huge celebrity in San Diego doing all the he was a big DJ. And so he they basically did a huge contest out of thousands of kids and I got second place and it was a contest for drawing but also putting a story with it. And so it was supposed to be it was supposed to be an informative story, like, you know, this is a whale, and it's a blue whale, and it eats krill, and it it swims around the world, and yada, yada, you know, that stuff. But my story, I got second place. My picture was beautiful, and I was so well, crushed. Was, describe the picture. We can't wait to see it, Brian. Just describe it so we can visualize it. It was a whale jumping out of the water. It was halfway out of the water with its dorsal fins coming out straight up and down with a dolphin jumping next to that and a seagull flying across them and the sunset in the background. And I wrote a story about the whale and the the dolphin and the seagull being friends and conquering a pirate ship and saving the world. And it wasn't informative at all. <laughs> it was completely fantasy, fantasy story. And I... Ended up getting second place because it was not a, it was not a uh, correct story for the for the species, 
Well, that's all right. In other words, what you were, I mean, early on, you were showing your creativity. That's the point. Yeah, it was. I guess it was. Yeah. In other words, unfortunately, on one hand, they rewarded you for the drawing, but didn't reward you for the story because I guess they wanted a true story. They wanted you to get right. They didn't want you to make. Yeah, but it sounds like you created a very exciting story. And that's kind (laughs) of too, yeah, that was too bad. And that unfortunately happens in the school system where gifted children are not adequately rewarded sometimes if people don't appreciate the fact that they're divergent thinkers. And that's what you were. You were a divergent thinker, thinking out of the box. (laughs) And as a great artist today, you're also a divergent thinker. But we're going to hold on to that for a moment till we get to your great art. Um, In the second grade, you were diagnosed as having dyslexia. How was it diagnosed, and how did it affect you? Well, they have tests that you go through when parents expect that you're, you know, if your kid is behind in reading. And I was very behind in flashcards. And I mean, I could read flashcards, but I couldn't put the words together in a book. I could read every every flashcard. I could read them, but when it became in a book in story form, I just couldn't grasp the concept. So. I didn't really learn how to read till late second grade like I didn't I didn't really understand it. And so I had to go through these tests and you know they're just words and and memory and and visual those kind of tests I don't exactly remember but from second grade all the way through college I received special help for my dyslexia note taking extra time on tests and so on. Well, that was very good that you got help. What I think is also fascinating is the fact that even with your dyslexia, you wrote a highly creative story, so it didn't stop you, so to speak. Right. It's right. Just the, it's just the re, it's just the reading part. I would say is I can make stories up great, you know, as long as there's as long as there isn't words in front of me. It's great, but once words get in front of me, it starts getting kind of confusing. On the other hand, you went off, you left San Diego, you went off to Cal State University in Chico, which is about 600 miles from your home in San Diego. Why did you go there? Tell us all about that. I uh, took a trip there. A long time ago, in my sophomore year in high school, for a water polo trip, my water polo team, we went on a river rafting trip, a whitewater river rafting trip, and Chico State was just a little detour out of the way, and I could check out a college way far away from home. Checked it out, beautiful redwoods in the middle of campus, stone sculptures, a river running through the middle of campus with steelhead and salmon running through it. Just beautiful brick buildings, red brick buildings with ivy growing up on the buildings. Just gorgeous, pristine, and very far away from home. You know, so it was kind of intimidating at first, but then the older I got and the closer I got to moving out, the more exciting it got because it was so far and 
that's where my friends were going. And I, they would call me in the middle of the night my freshman year in college when I was still in San Diego. And they would be like, dude, you got to come. It's so much fun. It would be like 2 o'clock in the morning. And so they, they really enticed me, and so did the DSS program from Chico State, the Disabled Student Services that offered me a lot of help to get through college. Which is wonderful. Uh, tell us about how your passion for working with glass was ignited at Chico. It was definitely something I didn't have control over. It completely grew out of control. It, uh, God, it started with the first gather. It's called a gather. When you, when you put a metal object, a long metal, either solid or hollow, metal rod into the furnace to gather glass you're gathering it and that gather in itself when you wind 2150 degree molten stone onto the end of a metal rod like it's honey it just has an effect on on certain people and i was one of them and it was over you were in love (laughs) it sounds like brian you were in love yeah it's it definitely uh (laughs) <laughs> definitely detoured a lot of my um, college girlfriends. I pretty much lost all of my college girlfriends because of my true love. <laughs> yeah, your true love was your glass. So, all right, so you said goodbye to your college girlfriends, but later we'll learn how uh, you did find a lovely wife. But let's let's keep our listeners listening to the development of Brian as a glass genius here. Let's go further. While you were in college, you started selling your artwork. That was really the beginning or the seed for you to become an entrepreneur. What exactly did you create and what did you sell and how did you go about doing that? Well, I did anything I could, you know, so I had to make some money and I had something, I had my hands on something that not many people had their hands on, which was molten glass. So the first thing I ever made and made money off of were these $7, $7 sticks, these metal sticks that you would stick in the ground, stick in your, in your little planter ivy inside your house, and it was a mushroom, a glass mushroom with little dots on it, a toadstool. And so you, all your flowers could have little toadstools. And that was the first thing I sold. Those are $7 a piece. Sold maybe two dozen of them. <laughs> and that's about uh, 10 years ago because you're 29 now, and I think you started selling when you were 19. Is that correct? Yep, that is right. Okay, a lot's happened in the last 10 years, Brian. I know, I wouldn't have yeah, guessed. It's amazing. How did you find people to buy the glass? Oh, it's, you know, I just have to put it out on the street. I just have to put it out in public. So that's what you did when you were in college. You set up shop on the street. I would just have a a yard sale, a yard and art sale, you know, just put a table out with some glass objects. And people would buy it. And, you know, a lot of people walk by. It's Chico, so a lot of people are walking, riding their bike. It's very flat in Chico, so... There's a lot of people just cruising, and you can make money just by setting glass out like a like a gypsy, you know. 
<laughs> were you excited when you were selling your art? Did you say to yourself, my passion can even make me money? <laughs> it didn't really hit in. Like, then, no, not okay, at all. Okay, not yet. Okay. It, it took a while. It took a while. Once I started working at Orient and Flume, and well, I let's, started... Let's... Let's hold Orient and Flume for one moment, okay? Because what I wanted to do was talk about how, after college, you became a janitor in a nightclub and bar <laughs> while chasing the Orient and Flume um, who produce fine art glass. So take us back first to the janitorial days and tell us how you bugged Orient and Flume to get that job. Well, I, was, I bugged them for definitely two years, over and over, once a month, sometimes twice a month, very, very, very consistently. I would go by there, talk to the owner. Oh, so you would go in person. You didn't call them on the phone. No, I actually went in person for two years and just was very consistent with it and rode my well, bike there. Well, that's good. What did you say? Because our listeners need to learn how to package themselves to pitch. That's part of my right fit method. So what did you say? Even though it took two years, you finally oh, yeah. got it, a job. What is it you told them about yourself? Did well, you what in your class? Took, yeah, it, it really, I really did, did a lot of thinking about it because you know, words could only do so much in this situation. These people needed to see that I was trying what they were doing. So my last, actually my last semester in college, before, this was two years before I even got hired, I was practicing their techniques. I was doing similar shapes and similar techniques to what they were doing. And so I made a hand, a suitcase, literally a suitcase, a duffel bag full of glass that was similar to their technique. And I brought it over after... Two years of bugging them, I decided I'm going to grab all the glass that I have. And I'm tired of bugging them about <laughs> how I can how I can offer them my service for very cheap price, you know, very very minimal. I'm just asking to work here, and I just took a suitcase over there and showed them what I could do and what I have done. And a week after that, I got a call. Okay, so that's how you close the deal. By bringing the suitcase of glass. <laughs> How did they respond when you arrived with your suitcase of glass? And I also, too, you know, many people, it's fascinating to me that you arrived in person without an appointment, am I correct? Yeah. Or did you make it, you, you went without an appointment. How did you get to see the owner of Orient and Flume without an appointment? What did you tell them? Well, in this, in, when I brought the suitcase by, I showed all the main glass blowers that were out there, and I showed the woman that was working the gallery. I didn't see the owner at that point. I did make many previous appointments, and I did talk to the owner a few times, but it was mostly filtered through the secretary. All right, but what did you tell the secretary? <laughs> because I coach lots of people, and many are hesitant to call and, you know, to make a cold call and present themselves and to pitch themselves. So what did you tell the secretary when you arrived in person? I mean, why did she, she present you to the owner of Orient and Flume? Well, since she knew my name, you know, she's seen me many times. 
I already did the whole introduction. She saw me. Hi, Brian. <laughs> you here again? I think Doug is available. <laughs> it was one of those where it was she knew while I was there, and he was available at the time. And it was just consistency. And I just happened to show up at the right time. And she knew exactly what I wanted. Oh, so that was terrific. Well, you obviously got her to be empathetic to you. Oh, yeah. she. I saw her just a few days before I got hired. I saw her at a nice restaurant with my folks. Took them out to this nice restaurant. where they actually took me, but I showed them where it was. And I saw her at... The restaurant and then I got called in two days after so it was a, a line of events and I kept seeing her around town and that restaurant trip was the last time I saw her before she hired me or they hired me I mean approximately how many times did you present yourself in person at Orient and Flume before they hired you oh 30, approximately because it's 30. over two years you you went there 30, 30 times, probably 30, 40. 30, 40 times. Probably. I would go there often just to watch because I was picking up on how they were blowing glass. Every studio has a different way of blowing glass. Every studio is set up differently. There's dozens of ways to blow glass and to pick up on their technique and to show them that I could do their technique helped me get hired. Let me ask you, did you ever feel rejected during this two-year period? personally rejected definitely never i never thought i was going to get the job i, I thought it was a, someone would have to die for me to get the job it's it's a small thing they don't need oh you know they don't need a lot of people so there was enough glass blowers and there was enough assistance and it just happened to be that i put my foot in the door and i got hired as a lapper it's called which does the grunt work you straighten pieces you grind them with heavy diamonds and then bring them up to a polish using finer and finer stones and it's very tedious very hard on the wrist give you carpal tunnel wet you have to do it with water so in the winter time it's very cold and then i worked my way up now you did leave orient and flume let, oh, well, let me just step back for one second regarding the rejection. Many people with respect to rejection stop because they can't handle the rejection. What did you do to help you overcome and handle the rejection before they hired you? Well, there's only one option. There's two options of where I could work in Chico, Orient and Flume or Rick, Rick Satava, who does these beautiful jellyfish, world-renowned jellyfish maker. Everywhere in the world you'll see him. And I was trying at both studios. It was very hard to get a job at Rick's, and it was even harder to get a job at Orient and Flume. And it was just persistence, and I didn't care, because I had to be a glassblower. I had to blow glass. I could not be a janitor anymore, because that's not what I wanted to do. Glassblowing is on the mind every day I couldn't do it I missed the glass blowing so much whopping that hot glass up is it's an addiction almost I mean it is not even almost it's a complete addiction so it's I had the passion it. it's the passion that kept you going definitely definitely yeah it's the passion so that 
because you're so passionate about the glass blowing, it seems to me from what you're saying, you forgot or overlooked the personal rejection because you focused on the passion. Very much so. I wasn't concerned of anything else. That was just one. Why did you why did you decide then to leave Orient and Flume? Well, I'm an artist that has to create objects that are in my head. I have to make beautiful things that I see, that I sketch in my book, that I look at in nature and I want to recreate in my way. And I couldn't do that working for somebody and then getting their name put on it after I got done making it. These are designs that were passed down 20 years and this guy that had his name on it may not even work there anymore. And there's so no basically, you were just you were almost like a mold maker, even though you had oh. to do it by hand. Am I, isn't that the concept? Oh yeah, oh, you just yeah. Kept, I was definitely a yeah. production maker. I was, a production I was maker, right? Production. Yeah. But production in glass blowing is five a day, or seven a day, seven vases. It, it, production is minimal but it is definitely production. So you decide that, in essence, you first went there because it was the right fit. You wanted to work for them and to learn more about the business. Mm -hmm. And then you left because you couldn't be creative. Am I expressing it correctly, Brian? That is exactly it. Exactly. It's plain and simple is creativity was a must and they had a certain style they had a certain way that orient and flume is it's orient and flume and I well that's what made them the orient and flume right but that actually, doesn't mean that you had to spend the rest of your days here just creating from what they had as original designs exactly i was making funky things i was making some weird things like like anatomically correct heart vases, a vase that looked like a, a real heart with, you know, big veins coming off of it and really crazy weird stuff. And it was selling in the gallery. It was it would stand out like a sore thumb. It was funny. It was my way of experimenting and I would look at the gallery and I would think, okay, what would look completely odd in here? And I would make that. And that didn't fly for long. <laughs> well, because you weren't you weren't conforming. Think about it. Looking back in the second grade, when you won your drawing contest at SeaWorld, okay, part of it was within the framework of acceptable standards. Part of it was not. Mm-hmm. It's the mm-hmm. same concept here. If you had conformed to what they had wanted you to do, they would have been delighted. But as soon as you stopped conforming, then that created issues. Mm, Okay? All right, so let's go forward. Um, You left Orient and Flume. How did you get your position with Bill Gudenroth, the master Venetian glass artist at the world-renowned Corning Museum and Institute? I went to Corning to take some classes. It was a gift from my my father. He gave me a gift to go take some lessons. 
good, you know, good for someone to take lessons in their field to get better. So I went and took two lessons. One lesson, which was a week long, on how to think of art conceptually, how to create something visually from a conceptual thought or, you know, anything that's on your mind, how to step your way through it to make it visual. Then the next week was a Venetian class, which was Bill's class. Venetian glass blowing dragon stem goblets are his his main item. He makes these dragon stem goblets. They're dated back in the 900s. Venetian glass blowing, beautiful. He makes them all by himself, which is unheard of. Glass blowing's a two, a two man team thing. You have to do it with two people, except for Bill. And so he trained me, and he really liked me apparently, and he liked the way I blew glass, and he just invited me back he said why don't you come back next uh semester and help me out with this class and i was like we'll pay for everything we'll fly you here i was delighted i was so happy about it i could not tell you how much of an honor that was but at the same time you didn't accept it in terms of becoming his teaching assistant why not well, I couldn't accept it right away. I had, you know, my business, the not the business, not Sutherland Glass Art, but I had Orient Flume at the time. I had to get back. This was in between. This was at the very end of Orient Flume, and I had to get back to work because my vacation was up. And so then I had to, you know, do it later on down the road, and I did do it eventually. And it was a week long, and it was great. It was a wonderful thing. But I definitely had to reschedule it. But you didn't stay over the long term. Am I correct that you could have stayed longer? I could have stayed longer. I could have definitely stayed longer. They offered for me to come back. and I mean, whenever I want, and I haven't been back in, I don't even know how long it's been. It's been three years. It's been three years since I've been back. And the offer stands probably dwindled now, but I just have to <laughs> make some well, No, I calls. would think the offer would be even stronger because... True, uh, I guess so. I have a strong portfolio now, and that's... Absolutely. I didn't Absolutely. even have this portfolio that I have now. I didn't have SutherlandGlassArt.com. I didn't have Fizzle Fruit. I, I was fresh. I had nothing when I went there. Let's go further. Uh, What made you decide to rent a 35-acre abandoned fruit cannery and set up your studio here? Tell us about the forklift maintenance shop, the perfect studio. (laughs) Oh, it's so amazing. It's so amazing. It's this perfect giant shed in the back of 35 acres of an abandoned factory with Stainless steel everywhere with scrap iron everywhere, all sorts of random tools and gears that you could make into a shop. And this entire facility had all the scraps for me to build my entire studio in the back in the forklift maintenance shop. It's a 2,000 square foot steel shed with drainage oil separation, airflow, sprinkler system, full electricity, everything I needed, every single thing I can possibly need for a glass studio. And it was made out of metal and not out of wood, which is great. 
so when you saw it, you decided that you would just rent, and somehow or other you had 35 acres going along with this. Am I correct? Well, I can't necessarily walk around at my leisure. It's, it is definitely an eyes kept on it by a maintenance guy. Right. I have to go through him. He's my good friend. He's like one of my best friends now, Bobby. Him, Bobby and Donovan, they're like family now, and they have the forklift. Whenever I need a forklift, they bring the forklift over. Whenever I need anything, they build it. They help me out. They help me run gas through the entire studio. They're just unbelievable. This And this property comes with a maintenance man. Well, that's just, terrific. So they're basically the caretakers, too, I'm gathering. Oh, yeah, they are the caretakers, the The, the guards. Yep. Well, this is good from a safety perspective. I think it's fabulous you're not there by yourself. I mean, even though you have an assistant, it would be pretty lonely if there was nobody else on those 35 acres. <laughs> it is. It's it's pretty eerie. I've I've walked around before when it's raining and there's there's basically swinging chains with rain dripping down from them and rust everywhere and shutters flapping completely dark you can't even see your hand in front of your face in some spots very scary by yourself and supposedly there's a ghost dog a ghost dog is that what i heard you say <laughs> that's what the locals say i've never seen him i guess okay. i just have to keep leaving ghost food all right take us walk us through the glass blowing process i know we talked before the show you told me about the heat and that you can't wear gloves. Take us into your studio and step-by-step um, paint the picture of you and your assistant working together. It sounds like it's almost a ballet to make these beautiful pieces of glass. It is. It is. There's a lot of times words aren't even need to, don't even need to say a word throughout half the day. You just... We know what each other's going to do. We've been working with each other for uh, all the way through college. We worked with each other. He was, uh, him and I were glassblowing partners in college, experienced how to, you know, start out in college. And then I went on, and he went on doing another career, and then I re met and didn't reunite with him because I've talked to him here and there, but we rekindled the glassblowing friendship and, and friendship as well because I'm with him pretty much six days a week blowing glass. We have the music going. Definitely have to have the serious satellite, CDs. Have to play music. You pull glass out of the furnace. It's moving. Moves like taffy. Moves like honey on the end of these sticks and blowpipes. And we're blowing bubbles with this molten glass, reheating it. Going back to the bench, Josh is bringing me bits and parts of molten glass, and I'm connecting them one at a time, spinning them out like pizza dough. They're flinging around, spinning really fast. Do they fast. fall Everything. at all, Brian? Oh, yeah. they Sometimes they fall cold, and it makes a horrible crash, explosion sound. Sometimes they get so hot when you're spinning them, it sprays like cotton candy, molten glass cotton candy. There's, I mean, there's crazy stuff that happens in the studio. Every day you lose pieces, and you put, you know, an hour, two hours into a piece, and it will fall. It will 
break. What's the temperature? I know you told me it was very, very hot. Well, it starts out, when I pull it out of the furnace, it's at 2,150 degrees. 2,150 degrees when you pull it out of the furnace? Exactly. Exactly. And you don't wear gloves? You wear nothing besides a cut-off sleeve shirt, in my case. Um, Sandals, if you're crazy. Sometimes sandals are nice in the summertime. You just got to watch your toes. But it's hot. You know, you have to wear shorts or pants. But it's hot, so you have to breathe. It's around 120 degrees in the summertime in the studio, around 150 in the workspace. So you sweat, and you need to you need to not have clothes constricting you. It's amazing. I don't know how you can physically do it. It's it's very very strenuous. It's really heavy. You're whopping the glass on the end of a five foot long stainless steel rod. So only on one side does it have ten fifteen pounds of moving molten liquid that you're constantly having having to re-straighten and re-bend because it's falling towards the ground and you have to keep working it and turning it. And if you stop turning, it's a puddle of liquid on the ground. So you can't stop turning until you're done with that hour of work. And then you could take a drink and wipe your sweat. It's pretty strenuous. Yeah, in terms of the strenuous aspect of it, how do you envision yourself doing this later in life? I try to envision myself doing it till I'm 80 years old, but I know that's not going to happen. It realistically, realistically, probably won't be able to do it past 50. Um, I mean... 55 would be pushing it, but once you start getting to 60, which isn't even that old, I'm going to be blown out. My elbows would be blown. My my wrists will be completely blown. My finger joints will be gone. It's, uh, it's something that I'm going to have to train other people to do my designs just as I was doing someone else's design. Well, that would make sense. I mean, a ballerina doesn't dance late in life either. I mean, how late can a ballerina dance? Exactly. Yeah, I mean, some things are just too physical to do when you're older. Going a bit further, uh, when we talked prior to the show, you were telling me that you need to make four glass sculptures in order to create one, which is an artwork at a high enough quality that can appear in galleries and exhibits. Why is that? Well, my line of work right now is mostly consisting of clamshells. And my clamshells are what called free forms. A free form is molten hot glass, spun open, so out of control, like pizza dough, when pizza dough is thrown up in the air, and then when some tropical force ceases, the freeform curtains. And just like the pizza dough, pizza dough curtains over the fist, the glass curtains down, and it's a freeform. And every single one of them is different. A lot of them have, not a lot of them, but some of them have thin spots. Some of them have a bubble. 
Some will have a little scratch from the tool mark. Some will have a piece of ember burnt into the color. Just a tiny, almost pinhead dot will ruin the entire quality. Not necessarily the quality, because it's not going to break. And in my eyes, it's still beautiful, but galleries want something flawless, almost perfect looking to the eye. So I have to make four to every one that goes out so I can pick through them and send them to the galleries. And I, I think you also told me you do sell, however, uh, the others that you feel are acceptable, even though they're not at the gallery standard. Am I correct, Brian? That's exactly right. That's that's how I do my retail shows. I I have a van, an E-150 Ford van. I pack it full of glass, full of bubble wrap, Russian doll-style pillars stacked inside of my van. And then I go to San Francisco, to Walnut Creek, Menlo Park, Beverly Hills, so on and so forth, all the way to Texas and to Philadelphia, just caravanning my glass around, setting up at art shows, wine and jazz festivals and high-end art shows, set all my pillars out, put all my glass out on mirrors, make sure everything's nice and polished, price tags, and that's how I sell most of my glass. That's how I do make the majority of my money. In 2008, you won first prize in the glass category at the Beverly Hills Art Show, A Fair in the Garden. Tell us how you felt when former President Bill Clinton stopped by your booth in October after you won first prize. <laughs> I was on cloud nine. It was, I was shaking from excitement. It was Shaking from excitement? I guess you were shocked. Well, what happened, all within a matter of ten minutes, First I got the ribbon, then I met Bill Clinton, and as right after I met Bill Clinton, my clients came up that I got this installation for. So I got this huge thing, and Bill Clinton was just like seeing, oh God, it was, it was like seeing nothing I've ever seen before, because he's the most famous person I could think of. And I've never even seen a famous person being from, you know, San Diego, right, but I've been in Gridley for 10 years, and... I see the same people every day in a town of 3,000 people. And Bill Clinton coming up, he was like a building, and he had the entire Santa Monica, half of it, blocked off just because he was walking on the sidewalk with 12 security guards around him, you know, secret service, I mean. Everybody was following him. He comes up to my booth, and he, he comes right up to my booth, and he's like, wow, you made all this? <laughs> I could not believe it. And I was like, yes, I made all this. I'm Brian Sutherland. Welcome to Sutherland Glass. Here's my work. Josh, my assistant, comes up, hands him a underwater seascape weight with barnacles and a sea anemone on it with sponges. And he held that in his hand, and he couldn't believe it. He was like, wow, this is really amazing. And shook his hand again and handed Josh the camera. I said, do you mind if I take your pic? If we take picture together? <laughs> and we took a picture, and I had the hugest smile. I couldn't believe it. And then he carried on and went on down the road, and I didn't even think for a second of giving him something until five minutes after. 
tell us what you called him. Our listeners will enjoy that. <laughs> I'm almost embarrassed. I say, Bill, welcome. <laughs> did he laugh when you said, Bill, welcome? What did he, what did he say? He did. I said, Bill, welcome, and shook his hand, and he shook my hand just as tight as he would anyways. He didn't care at all that I called him Bill, and I didn't even think of it until my assistant made fun of me. Well, your assistant is delightful. I met your assistant in May when I was at the affair in the garden in Beverly Hills when I saw your artwork, and at that moment you weren't at your booth, but I was chatting with your assistant. He has a great personality. He's very warm. He's very friendly. Yeah, Josh is great. I could definitely uh, couldn't be doing this without Josh. Josh is there with me every day. He's He helps me out from the very beginning of Sutherland Glass from when I started my studio. Tell us about the gigantic piece of glass sculpture that you sold for $31,000, which you custom designed to fit over a long sectional sofa in Beverly Hills. Oh, so beautiful. So those are the people I met in Beverly Hills right after I met Clint. Bill, I mean. They have this unbelievable palette just waiting in their living room. They have the sofa, an L sofa. Not even an L. It's at a 42-degree angle. It's a custom sofa, beautiful couch with this gray wall with halogens all on top of the ceiling, directly pointing at this blank canvas just waiting, this giant gray wall and they completely just said it's up to you make this pretty fill the wall it's up to you did they they saw your work at uh affair in the garden then uh yeah yeah exactly. okay exactly they saw my work they just came up to me and they said we like your designs we really would love a chihuly a dale chihuly which would be very, very, about in the $2 million range to do their wall. He's a very high-renowned glass artist. He's the highest. He does installations everywhere around the world. And they basically didn't want to pay $2 million, you know, $2 million $5 million, whatever it was. So they saw me. They met me. They said, we love your designs. Can you please put these on the wall? And I said, I would be delighted. I would love to. Are you kidding me? And so they trusted me 100% that I would do it and follow through. And it was the first installation that I've ever done. And I didn't even have a f pictures to show them of pieces on the wall. And they just completely left it up to me. And it was beautiful. That's amazing. How long did it take you and how many pieces are in that installation above that huge sectional? Well, what you can see is only half of it. The other half is metalwork, and that's on the back end. So the pieces themselves of glass, there's 28 of them on the wall, and they range from about 12 inches in diameter to 22. 24 inches actually is the biggest one, and that's in the top corner, purple one. Mm -hmm. And then there's two on the table that match. It's it's on your website, Brian, or is it on the new website that's going up so our listeners it, can go and look at it? It's definitely 
not on my website now on SutherlandGlassArt.com, but on the new SutherlandGlassArt.com that was supposed to be done by today, but I haven't heard from my web designer, so apparently it's not. All right, but I guess shortly, I guess in the next couple of weeks, they can go to your website and they can they can yeah, view and you it can for also themselves. Yeah, on yeah. MySpace. On MySpace, I have a MySpace account. Oh, good. So you they can go, go to MySpace and see it. Terrific. Yeah, yeah there's All lots right. of pictures on MySpace too. Good. What advice do you have for those who are searching for their career passion? What advice? I would definitely. It's so easy for me to say because I'm doing something that just seems like a game to me, though, with this glass. It's so it's like playing in Play-Doh all day. And so for me, it's so natural, and it just feels so good to play with this material that I love to play with. And so it almost feels like I'm cheating, but I'm not. <laughs> you know, it's... It's you're so saying much, you're having so much fun that that's the thing. I'm having so much fun. I can't wait to go to work. Now you found your passion as a child, um, so it's not easy for some people. It's really not. Know, what do you think that? What do you think contributed? to your ability to find that passion early in life. Because in essence, when we were talking, um, we spoke about how you set the bar higher and higher to win without competing. And you told me what your dad taught you. Tell us about that. Well, as a a young one, I was always into sports. I was doing baseball lots of baseball, all the way from 10 years old to 19 years old. Soccer, football, water polo. Every day after school, I would go to the batting cages or go hit grounders or go play catch. Something to practice the skill that I was trying to get better at. Repetition over and over. Even when I didn't want to do it, he would, you know... Make me play the piano. I didn't play the piano, but just isn't the same thing. And I had to stick through it, and I did. And that kept me going when I don't want to go, like it happens all the time in the studio now. I want to stop making something because it's not turning out. And so I have to make it, and I can't go home until I make it right. And I really believe that was installed in my early years. Well, because he taught you to persevere, to persevere, to compete with yourself, and to raise the standard higher and higher. Exactly. You were very lucky to have such a wonderful dad. (laughs) He is all right. He is a very good dad. (laughs) He must be very proud of you. He says he is. I'm sure he is. One day you must bring him to a fair in the garden. I'd love to meet him. I know. He's going to have to make it. He's definitely going to have to make it. It's quite a spectacular art show. Without a doubt. You are married to Sharla and have two children. How did you actually find Sharla, given that your first passion is glassmaking? 
<laughs> well, Charlotte had it easy. I wasn't blowing glass when we met. So I was a janitor, and I was available. <laughs> ah, okay, that's how she met you. Okay, so now we know. At that moment, you were available. <laughs> Terrific. All right. Uh, but actually, I would have been available anytime for Charlotte. She is such a cool, mellow girl. She's wonderful, and that's what I was looking for was a mellow girl, very chill. And we met going to Chuck E. Cheese's, actually. <laughs> Chuck E. Cheese was our first date. Our Her best friend was going out with my best friend and roommate. So they hooked us up, and we went to Chuck E. Cheese's for a nice, mellow date. <laughs> when did you decide that you wanted to marry Sharla? Well, Sharla and I hadn't even talked about marriage. Hadn't We were just living our wonderful relationship and going on. By this time, I was blowing glass, got my job at Orient and Flume. We were living together. She moved from Sacramento up to Chico, got a place together. We were so happy, and we accidentally had our first page. And three days before Paige was born, we actually just got married at a park that we used to go to and swim in the river. We just called someone up from the Yellow Pages. We're about to have a baby. We want to get married now. <laughs> well, that was a practical approach. Very whoever practical. could make it made it. So how many years have you been married? We've been married for three and a half years. A little over, almost four years. How do you balance your personal and professional life? Well, I love Chico, and I only live 30 minutes away from Chico. All my friends are in Chico. So we make a point. Charlotte really helps me out, too, with it. She pulls me away from my studio, gets me away from the glass, and we go visit our friends about once a week. At least definitely try to. And we set up dinners like last night. Before I came here to L.A., I only got four hours of sleep, but I had to have dinner with my friends before I came. I just have to do it. It's a, it's a thing that is fun to do. I love to hang out with my friends, but my wife definitely has to help me. <laughs> well, she has to pull you away from your uh, class. Yeah. Passion. Exactly. Well, you've got two passions here. Well, I guess actually you have four passions. You have your glass, your wife, and your two children. <laughs> exactly. Exactly, I have a lot going on. Well, Brian, I must say it was absolutely delightful having you today as my guest. Mm, it was so much fun. I had such a good time talking with you. Good. And I look forward to seeing you in October at the Affair in the Garden. Thank you for joining me today and sharing your exciting career story. Come back soon. Thank you so much, Arlene. My pleasure, Brian. Much luck and great career success. Upcoming shows. Please join me again next week on Wednesday, June 17th at 5 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. I will interview Maria 
Dabrowski, award-winning fine jewelry designer whose spectacular jewelry has appeared on television shows, magazine covers, and enjoyed art exhibits. Tune in on Wednesday, June 24th, for Daniela Camay, the mistress of whimsical sculpture, and on July 1st, Sandra Grassi Nelipovich, award-winning boutique artist, and on July 8th, Sherilyn Kenyon, who, according to Publishers Weekly, is the reigning queen of the vampire novel. Kenyon had four books on the New York Times bestseller list in one year. I would love to hear from you. Please email me at drbarro at winwithoutcompeting.com or call 310-441-5305. That's 310-441-5305. Please remember that I'm based in Los Angeles. To learn more about the Right Fit Method and my book, Win Without Competing, Career Success, The Right Fit Way, visit winwithoutcompeting.com. For information about career coaching, visit drbarro.com. That's drbarrow.com. And for search services, Barrow Global, that's B-A-R-R-O-G-L-O-B-A-L.com. Remember this trigger tip? Walk down the right fit road and you will win without competing. Goodbye for now. This is Dr. Arlene, author, Win Without Competing, Career Coach One, Founder and CEO. Barrow Global Search, Inc.